Hello, and welcome to our first episode of Belief and Ballots. Our topic is the place of faith in the public square. Should religion be part of the conversation? We are excited to welcome Professor Michelle Dillon. She is Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and the UNH Class of 1944 Professor of Sociology. Her research focuses on autonomy and authority in the Catholic Church, moral politics, religion, spirituality, and aging, and religion and cultural exchange. Her publications include Post-Secular Catholicism, Relevance and Renewal, Catholic Identity, Balancing Reason, Faith, and Power, American Catholics in Transition, and In the Course of a Lifetime, Tracing Religious Belief, Practice, and Change. Professor Dillon has served as President of the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, Chair of the American Sociological Association Section on the Sociology of Religion, and President of the Association for the Sociology of Religion. She is frequently interviewed by regional, national, and international media outlets on matters pertaining to religion. And in 2021, she was listed in the world's top 2% of researchers. Thank you, uh, Michelle, for joining us today. Could you tell us about your areas of research and what brought you to this field? Sure, and thanks, thanks, Catherine. Well, I am a sociologist by training. I studied social science many years ago as an undergraduate in Dublin at University College Dublin, and then also did my master's there. And then after working for a couple of years at uh, an important research institute in Dublin, I came to University of California, Berkeley to do my PhD in sociology. That was a wonderful, transformative experience. I just very much enjoyed the Bay Area, California, the U.S. This was my first time ever being in the U.S., and one of the things that struck me very early on was that here you are in this most beautiful part of the world. And despite all the options that people have, religion seemed to be a very important piece of people's lives. Um, you know, so there was lots of different kinds of churches, lots of houses of worship, temples in Berkeley at the time. And uh, on a regular basis, Saturdays, Sundays, Fridays, you would see people going, young people as well as uh, older people going and partaking of whatever religious services they were drawn to. And so, you know, coming from Ireland, this was a surprise to me. Ireland in those days, this was the mid-1980s, was a, a highly religious, highly Catholic society. It has changed quite dramatically in the last 15 or so years. Uh, and of course, I knew intellectually that uh, the U.S. was a religious society and relative to Europe in general, other than Ireland, you know, it was less secular, despite it being obviously a highly modern, progressive society. And so a core thesis within sociology is that with modernization, that a science and social progress advances and takes place, takes, you know, sort of penetrates into every sector of society, that religion particularly institutional religion, will lose really a lot of its authority, a lot, a lot of its hold on individuals and communities. And that's what's in a summary referred to as the secularization thesis. And my understanding was that above all places, if secularization were to happen, it really should be happening in the U.S. and perhaps particularly in California. And yet clearly religion had a big pull on people. And, you know, that was not my first Big question at the time, I ended up studying still the relevance of religion in Ireland, particularly looking at moral politics. There was a, an issue of divorce and there was a public referendum on that. But as I moved from that study after getting my PhD, my question became, why is it that religion still matters in the late 20th century? And then more specifically, 
by uh, looking at Catholicism, which was the religion that I knew most about and had studied the most and practiced personally. Uh, why is it that those within Catholicism who are, in a sense, objectively stigmatized, uh, lesbian and gay people, for example, uh, pro-choice Catholics, uh, Catholics who don't fully agree, feminist Catholics, for example, with the church's teachings, why do they continue and want to be still Catholic despite the pressures against them being Catholic? Those questions have, in various forms, fueled my research over the last many decades. That's it in a short version of it. Thank you. Yeah. So what would you say is the place of faith and or religion in American society? Well, certainly, you know, historically, and I would still say that still today, religion is very important in America. And, you know, I'm not a historian, I'm a sociologist, but you cannot understand American culture and society today without fully understanding the history of religion and how it has evolved or had evolved uh, from the earliest days in the American context. And of course, that was particularly a Protestant history. And, you know, what's fascinating, I think, one thing that's fascinating about Protestantism in America is how it really, because of the emphasis on freedom and adventureness, adventuresome spirit and entrepreneurialism, you really see the emergence of denominationalism, right? So Protestantism certainly had a few key denominations to begin with, but as you see Protestantism take off in the U.S. and as our American society and as the society evolved, really the rise to prominence of so many different Protestant denominations for all kinds of reasons. Some got to do with doctrine, many got to do with social and, and geographical considerations. And so religion really has been a part of the fabric of American society. And of course, then eventually uh, Protestantism still dominates, but the Catholic Catholicism, particularly driven by uh, the huge migration, immigration from Europe in the mid 19th century and subsequently has certainly uh, played a major role. And, and we know today, for example, Catholics are you know very well represented in politics and the judiciary and all sectors of society. But the Protestant cultural basis of American society and, of course, Max Weber, a great founder of sociology, wrote about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism uh, and about the individualism that came out of certain Protestant beliefs. So I, I believe I would argue that you really, whether you care about religion or not, you have to make you have to have an understanding of its relevance historically within the United States. How would you say that faith and or religion have played a role in societal debates throughout the history of America? Well, of course, religion, just like society itself, religion too changes. And uh, and that's that's a huge piece that we all you know work still to get our, our work and our research and people who are part of faith traditions to understand. So religious traditions evolve, right? They're traditions, so therefore they have a lot of core, certainly doctrines and dogmas that persists throughout time, but they also adapt to the societal and cultural context in which they operate. And, and so you've, to answer your question, I would say it's always played a role, but different denominations, different traditions have played particular roles depending on particular issues. Uh, certainly, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, you know, Protestantism was very involved in the um, prohibition and alcohol prohibition movement. And then, of course, in more recent times, you know, in the context of abortion politics in the U.S. in the late 60s and then into the 70s, it was initially the Catholic Church, which was the, the church most uh, noted as being opposed to abortion. But then even over those few decades, even by the 
mid-1980s, we saw that the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, changed some of its earlier stances. It was much more liberal on abortion than became uh, as, as conservative, really, as the Catholic Church on abortion. So, And that sort of became the the underpinnings of the new right from from a Protestant perspective, which, of course, we're still witnessing today in current abortion debates. So uh, the churches themselves, the religious denominations have evolved. And depending on the issue, some are more engaged than others. But they're certainly a vibrant part of the, the public sphere of the political culture in the society, in American society, certainly today and at different times across the last couple of centuries. Um, I mean, you touched upon it a little bit, but how do you think faith and religion and its role in societal debate societal debate has changed over the recent past, especially in light of questions such as abortion, as you mentioned, same-sex marriage or religious expressions in public schools? I think in the... You know, I think religion has become perhaps part of the polarization, regrettably, within the current United States. Historically, and this is a major generalization, but different religious traditions had what might be called a prophetic voice, you know, sort of stepping back from the fray of everyday politics and trying to recognize, you know, what is the common good? What are what, what are the goods here, the, the values that American society needs to protect or needs to advocate for? And that still happens, I think, for example, like the role of the Catholic Church and the U.S. Catholic bishops in the 1980s was really, in many, I think, scholars' assessment, including mine, was really, in a sense, a high point of public engagement by the American Catholic bishops, where they issued two very important you know, pastoral documents, one on the economy and one on nuclear war and, and violence. And, uh, and these were documents, you know, there were very erudite. They were well-researched. They used, you know, research and secular research, if you like, scientific findings, but also to point out, you know, the which is a long tradition in Catholic social teaching, you know, what's a just war? How do you use violence? And then in terms of the economic, you know, economic justice for all, how do you create a socially just society where people have access to a living wage and education and human rights, basically? And um, so that was in some sense a high point of, I would say, for, you know, and every denomination is different uh, for the Catholic bishops. And that has persisted over the decades. But I think in the public imagination, and I understand why um, the Catholic hierarchy in the U.S. has become much more perceived as being aligned with what might be less the social justice and economic justice aspects of Catholic church teaching and more aligned with advocating certainly uh, anti-abortion for sure, but also, you know, having reservations about gay rights, for example, and now, you know, gender ideology, for example. So a lot of it's very insightful and prophetic contributions on social justice uh, kind of got lost in some of those conversations and certainly in some of the, the public coverage and media coverage of the role of, of Catholic ideas in the public square. Since the word prophet can have different meanings depending on the religious tradition, could you explain what you mean by prophetic voice and prophetic role in this context? Of course, all speakers, including all religious speakers from a sociological perspective, are grounded in the reality in which they're observing and in which they're commenting on, even as they obviously believe in a, some form of transcendent divine power. And from a Weberian perspective, a prophetic voice really is someone who tries to be above the fray of the everyday cut and thrust of politics and try to be nonpartisan, impartial, 
and looking to the common good rather than the good or the interests of any one particular group in society. And so the example I'm using is from the Catholic bishops, but any religious or any figure can be prophetic in the sense of really trying to elevate the conversation, to elevate the debate, to think about the larger good. And of course, that's itself, what do we understand by the common good is itself a complicated question. But I think that's, so that's how I would um, use the word prophetic. It's really, it's really trying to, as I say, be nonpartisan, non-political, and as would be the case, even though, as I say, religion, all religions are grounded in the society context in which we see them. At the same time, all religions, by definition, try to focus on the non-material aspects of people's lives. So, of course, they focus on the material and in terms of social justice and economic justice, but. All religions believe in spiritual beings, right? That man, the humans are not just material beings, but also have spiritual interests. And so a prophetic voice seeks to, to speak in contemporary terms and ter contemporary vocabulary, but to elevate the, the values which a society needs to focus on in order to, to be a better society for all who are in it. What role can faith and religion play in the future dialogues in America and what needs to change for them to have a more adequate role in shaping the conversation? Well, you know, of course, one of the most interesting, I suppose sociologically speaking anyway, one of the most interesting trends in American society has been the rise in the non-affiliated, the number of Americans who say they have no religion. Um, you know, going back to somewhat I said at the beginning, where America, religion has always been important in America, and that's for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that you know the U.S. is really an immigrant society, right? The melting pot people come, for the most part, other than uh, indigenous peoples, have come from elsewhere, going back to the first settlers of the Puritans who came, other than the Native Americans. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation that religion mattered because it allowed people an identity. Uh, that they could say, I am, and give a religious affiliation, whether Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, all across the range of religious identities. And so religious affiliation and the numbers of Americans who report to opinion pollsters, people taking surveys going back to the 1940s, um, you know, the vast majority of Americans, you know, around 95 percent would always say they have some religion and give the name of that religion. But starting in the late 1990s, we began to see more and more people saying they have no religion, uh, that they didn't identify with any particular religious traditions. And initially, and because this number kept increasing, you know, from 7 percent to 9 percent to 10 percent, it just was really on this rapid year by year. Then pollsters thought, well, maybe they've no religion today, but they're they're looking, as you know, as you probably know, you know, what's called um, church shopping is a big thing, just like people like to shop in the U.S. for lots of things. Shopping for religion is a long historical pattern that partly is is intertwined with the whole rise of denominations and the different denominational traditions that people shop around for a church that fits with their interests and their needs. Uh, and so there was some concern that maybe people were just in between going from one affiliation to another. But uh, when they clarified the question, it was, it was very clear that people, more and more people were saying, I don't have a religious affiliation and I'm not looking for one either, that they really are keeping their distance from religion. So at least institutional religion. Uh, and so today about, uh, you know, it's really 30 percent of Americans uh, said they have no religious affiliation. So, I mean, it's still 
fewer here than in Europe, for example, but it's still quite a, a rise from just 7%, you know, in over 25 years ago or so. Having said all that, um, to, to your question, that doesn't mean that religion can't matter. And I think you see this, you know, right now as we're just this week, as you're aware, um, you know, you have the COP28, the climate uh, summit. And, you know, for the first time, you have what they're calling a, a faith pavilion at the climate summit, which is bringing together religious leaders from across all faiths. Um, and because there's a recognition that religious leaders, and they have been across all different uh, traditions for the last at least 20 years, and certainly over the last five to 10 years, have been very engaged in articulating what humans, the, mor the moral obligation that humans have to preserve and to conserve, you know, the earth and that, you know, that this is a gift from God, however one understands God and that, you know, dominion over the earth does not mean that you exploit the earth so that issues like global warming, climate change are causing so much devastation. Um, and so this to me is a very interesting development because I think particularly for young people, college students today, a lot of college students who, we also know, for example, the college students and people under 30 are the least religious. Now, that can always change, but it, there seems to be a pretty robust pattern that people, for the most part, under 30 in their 20s, um, about 40 percent say they have no religious affiliation. So they're more likely to have no religious affiliation compared to their parents or their grandparents' generation. But what they do care about a lot and it's not an either or, of course, but what they do care a lot about is environmental threats. And the, and that's a global, it's a local challenge, a national, a global challenge. And so I think uh, to me, what's sort of interesting is to see that climate change and the threat to, of environmental crisis is allowing for, um, in my opinion, of course, it should allow for religious voices to really take on actually a leadership role. Uh, and so, you know, I haven't been watching it too closely, but to see this faith pavilion for the first time, just the very fact, you know, going back to my answering my question, your first question, why did I get interested in religion? You know, one wouldn't expect maybe if you didn't know too much about religion to see a faith pavilion at the at the global climate summit. And yet it's there for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that religious leaders have a certain moral um, integrity and moral credibility, perhaps, to talk about climate change in ways that I know, again, of course, it has become politicized uh, in every country and between countries. So this to me is an example where perhaps young people and older people, too, can begin to, who may not care too much about religious institutions or religious traditions, may begin to see that, oh, actually, they're not what I think they are. They're not just always talking about maybe, let's say, sex and abortion and these sorts of issues, but they really are leading the charge when it comes to trying to cultivate awareness of what humans need to do in order to uh, deal with the climate crisis. So we talked about, you know, interest in, you know, climate and environmental protection and religion. What shared values can bridge the divide between religious and non-religious people? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, I think a shared value is, you know, hopefully the basics of dignity and respect for everyone. You know, the dignity of the individual, respect for human dignity. And just because someone disagrees with you or doesn't believe in the sorts of things you believe in or the deity that you believe in doesn't mean that you can't have conversation with them. It doesn't mean that you can't find common ground. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to like when you're in your class or having dinner with your friends or whatever, but 
you know, typically when you meet someone and you start chatting with them for the first time, even when you think you don't have too much in common with them, when you start talking a little bit more, you, you find out that there's something. You may not necessarily be in the same major or come from the same part of New Hampshire, from the country or wherever, but then you find that you have some one thing that allows you both to make a connection. Uh, and so I think if you think of that similarly between religious and non-religious people, it's not such actually a sharp divide because even though I've been talking I've emphasized that more and more people are disaffiliating from religion. Even among those who are disaffiliated, a lot of those still actually believe in some kind of spiritual world, in some you know divine being and that kind of thing. So there's a complexity and a nuance there that to draw a line and say, this person is not religious and this person is religious. How do you define what it means to be religious? And as we know, a lot of people who would identify as being religious are actually not that involved in their church or temple or mosque. So there's variation in people's levels of participation and commitment. Um, and so I think um, you know, it's easy to create barriers between people, but it's also if people have an open mind and an open heart, I guess, it's easy to discover that you have so many. Every two people or any two people tend to have much more in common than all the big things that divide us and them. And I mean, there are huge, you know, cultural, historical, political, economic, all kinds of barriers. Uh, but I think if as long as we focus on the core of what does it mean to be human, then there's so much more that can be discovered across these divides. Um, and I and I do think that, you know, when you going back to my earlier, just my point just now about the environmental issues, it doesn't have to be the environment, it could be something else, you know, uh, it could be some other issue that people can bond over who some are religious and some are so-called non-religious. So it doesn't have to be the pol And in fact, it's not the polarizing divide. I mean, it's hard historically, I think, to have brought different religious communities together just in terms of the geographical, you know, religion in America tends to be geographically distributed. Um, you know, there's more Protestants in the southern states. There's certainly more Catholics in New England. There are more Muslims in, in parts of Michigan and in New York. There's more Jews in New York and Boston, the city. So geography matters just as it matters to all kinds of, of you know, sort of the sociological sort of demography, if you will. Um but so therefore, at the local level, maybe when you drive through a town, it's sometimes notice, noticeable that there's certain types of religious or places of worship, religious sites and not others. Um, but even in those towns or communities where there is a mix of religious institutions, I know there are active efforts of inter-religious you know, religious dialogue, ecumenical efforts. And Usually when people participate in those, they find that they have things in common. They're not diluting what they themselves believe that's part of their own core religious tradition, but they're open to recognizing the faith beliefs of others. And so just as people of faith can hopefully have tolerance and deeper understanding of each other's respective faith beliefs, so too can religious people come to understand non-religious and vice versa. How does the inclusion or exclusion of religious voices in public discourse impact the diversity of perspectives and the overall inclusivity in decision-making processes? But partly because of the separation of church and state in the U.S., that complicates certain, I suppose, policy debates and the role of religious institutions and individuals in, you know, in directly injecting themselves into particular topics or issues. Um, now, and I think that the separation of church and state is certainly very important, 
but at the same time in terms of everyday cultural life and the operations of you know the routine activities that individuals do it's very hard it's in some sense an artificial separation uh, and so of course people participate you know, people from different faith traditions are citizens, they're political citizens, they're actively voting, they're actively running for election on school boards or whatever, and that's totally their right. And I think it's important that they bring their values and their particular perspectives, including then the perspective uh, of their particular religious tradition to understanding whatever the issues are. Um, they don't necessarily get a privileged voice in any of those debates, right? That's that's what democracy is. Every one voice, can, every voice counts. Um, but one would hope that they're able to bring a well-articulated viewpoint that can, depending on the issue, whatever, that can be useful for others to think about things uh, in different ways. Uh, so I'm not sure that I'm fully getting to the, the question, but they absolutely should be engaged. And that's their full right as as citizens to be engaged and as well from within a religious tradition, most religious traditions expect people to be bringing their faith to the public world, right? It's not that they're trying to convert other people to their faith, but that they're bringing the values of their faith to whether it's local or national politics or international politics, as we see with, as I say, with the current climate summit. What is the role of religious education in preparing people to engage in civic life? Well, I think it should have a very important role. I can't say that I, I don't know how effective it is. And of course, religious education has, I think, changed quite a lot over the last you know, 30, 40 years. Um, perhaps religious, you know, and this is again, because you have fewer Americans bringing up their children within their faith tradition or, or within any faith tradition, who does the religious education becomes maybe a little more diffuse. Uh, it's one thing, you know, if you go up in a religious family, you obviously pick up a lot of, without it being even intentional, you pick up the values, the habits of being within that faith tradition. And then, of course, there's typically some form of, of education through additional actually structured classes. Um, so I, I think some religious education is something that probably has become a little more diluted over the last few decades compared to certainly when I was growing up. And as I say, I grew up in a different context too. Um, but I think it has to be important and I think it should be. And for example, in a Catholic college, uh, I think that should make a difference that if a student goes to a Catholic college, that even though it's a Catholic college that's pluralistic, right? It's open to students of all faith and of no faith and has faculty all across the board that there still is a religious identity associated with that college, for example, or with a high school or whatever, and that that should be able to convey to everyone there that these are the, the core tenets and the core values that are very critical to their tradition. And that therefore, I would, if, you know, it's, it's easier said than done, perhaps, but I think it's to keep them to the fore and to draw out why they're important, right? Because it's not just whether, whether in college or school or at home, it's really to, it's just it's the formation of the individual and the formation of the individual's moral character and their character as citizens and and I think this is where for example we don't want to think that people's religion is separate from their role as political citizens because you can't split your personality you can't split your identity and um, thankfully increasingly in 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 the world today, we recognize the intersectionality of identity. And similarly, I would argue the religious and the political are intertwined. They're inter intertwined in individuals' own lives and therefore in what they bring to the civic public square. 
but uh, it's important that they know what their religion teaches, right? They could disagree with what their religion teaches on whatever the topic is or on certain issues, but uh, I think religious literacy is very important. And I think religious literacy is important even for people who are not part of that faith tradition. Now, of course, you can't necessarily learn, everyone can't learn all the details of every religion, but certainly for people who profess a certain faith, the more immersed they are in knowing what their particular faith, their religious tradition teaches, um, can only be, in my opinion, a good thing, right? Because then they're able to articulate to others why they think what they think or why they believe what they believe. Uh, not in a confrontation, I'm not when I say about articulating it, not in a defensive manner, but uh, as but you know, as a way of showing why they read a particular novel a particular way, you know, the religious imagination. Um it's not just about some of the political issues we've talked about. One's religious upbringing impacts how you read fiction and how you look at art and how you think about music, music and movies. So uh, in that sense, I think it is important the more someone knows about their tradition. I think that the richer their lives will be and hopefully the richer the lives of those with whom they spend time. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us and sharing your insight on this topic. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we did producing it. We value your thoughts and opinions, and we would love to hear from you. Share your feedback, questions, or even topic suggestions by emailing us at campusministry at anselm.edu. Your insights are crucial in shaping the future content of our podcast. If you found this episode valuable, consider sharing it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Belief and Ballots. A friendly reminder, we at St. Anselm College value fostering open dialogue and diverse perspectives. While we are grateful for our guests' insights on this episode, please remember that the opinions expressed are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official stance of St. Anselm College, its campus ministry, or its departments of theology and politics. We encourage you to consider these views critically and engage in further exploration on the discussed topics.